I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and it is the day before the Open Championship. Very excited for things to get underway at Royal Liverpool. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a few of Hoylake's most interesting holes and how they evolved into their current form. My guest is going to be Joe McDonnell, who knows more about the history of this course's architecture than just about anyone. So there's been a lot of discussion early in the week about internal out-of-bounds. At Royal Liverpool. Basically, there are out-of-bounds lines very close along the right side of both the third and 18th holes. As you would expect, a few intrepid Twitter users posted photos of these lines without much context, and a fair amount of people got pretty angry about them. This is unfair, internal OB is terrible, etc. etc. Now, Joe briefly addresses this topic later in our conversation, but I just wanted to clarify a few things about it. First of all, there's a separate discussion to be had about the OB rule, which hasn't always been the way it is now. Stroke and distance is a brutal penalty, and it leads to very conservative play around OB hazards. I'm happy to hear a debate about whether that's a good thing. But when it comes to Hoylake specifically, people should know that these OB lines that they're seeing on social media haven't just been painted there for the tournament. The lines on 3 and 18 actually travel along the top of a built-up berm that encloses a practice area. Often you'll hear these berms referred to as cops. That's what they've been called locally for a long time. So the cops and the area inside them have been there since the beginning of the course. They've always played as hazards. They've always been features that visitors have remarked on. In fact, I was just doing a little bit of research on Hoy Lake, and I revisited Horace Hutchinson's book from 1891 called Famous Golf Links. And in his chapter on Hoy Lake, he immediately, almost immediately, refers to the cops. So this has been a word, a concept that has been in use and discussed a lot for that long, you know, since the early 1890s. So these weren't just invented by the RNA this week to make things harder for the players. And initially, the practice area didn't even belong to the club. So it was a proper boundary line, what people would consider real OB as opposed to internal OB. So this is just a long way of saying that the OB lines that you're seeing on 3 and 18 are not completely arbitrary. They are traditional elements of Hoylake. And you can certainly say that they're lame, that they shouldn't have been there in the first place. That's your opinion, I guess. I think they help make the course distinctive, but there can be reasonable disagreement about that. The thing that's not really accurate is to imply that the OB was just invented for this tournament, as internal OB usually is. All right, so the rest of this episode will be my interview with Joe McDonnell. It's a really fun one. Joe's a great guy, so knowledgeable about this subject. I I actually can't believe how deeply steeped he is in this course and its evolution. So he's coming up right after this break. 
All right. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by Club TFE. You can check out Club TFE at thefriedegg.com slash membership. Club TFE is our subscription, our membership, our community. It is the single best way to support the content that we do at the Fried Egg. And it's also a really wonderful place to talk about golf and to read some more stuff about golf. So we're posting things there just about every day. Recently, just this past Friday, we had what we call a weekend chat post. You know, every Friday we put up just a place to chat. And the most recent one was on Lynx Golf, Lynx Travel, and stuff like that. And we just have some really wonderful comments in there, just great writing about people's experiences with Lynx golf courses and travel in Great Britain and Ireland. And I got a lot out of just reading what people had experienced. It gave me some ideas for what I want to do when, when I travel there, as I hopefully will do someday soon. So that's kind of what Club TFE is all about. It's about that community. But in addition to the content, in addition to those comment sections and those other people who are members that you get to interact with, there are a lot of benefits for Club TFE. You get early access to our events. You get an annual member gift. You get an ongoing discount in the pro shop. So there's a lot that you gain from joining Club TFE. Again, it's at thefriedegg.com slash membership. All the information is there. It's $120 a year, and I would love for you to join us there. All right, back to the episode. Joe McDonald, you are the head of imagery at the golf architecture firm Clayton DeVries and Pont, as well as a longtime member of Royal Liverpool, as I understand it. When did you start playing at the course? Uh, hi, Garrett. Uh, a long time ago. Um, I joined when I, was, when I was young. I don't think I was even a teenager. And, uh, and that was about 1992. So quite a way back. Wow. Okay. So, uh, you know, when you, when you say you joined, did you join with your family? So you were living in the area? Yes, that's right. I, I grew up uh, near-ish to Hoylake, four or five miles away. And uh, my dad had been playing for some years before I was born. And um, yeah, we, I sort of got Got the taste for it a bit later, uh, probably about the age of about eight or nine. I got really into messing around with chipping and putting and then and eventually was able to take full swing shots, you know, and then uh, started playing a little bit with my dad after dark. And um, I remember playing the old Dowie hole before uh, before it was changed uh, wow. in 92. So, yeah, memories go right back. This was a very fortunate place uh, to grow up, as I'm sure you've uh, thought a number of times. Amazingly, I think every year that goes past now, I'm more appreciative of the the sort of winning the golf lottery in certain sense. <laughs> so, at what point did you become interested in this course beyond just playing it? At what point did you realize that you wanted to study it? Uh, it was when it was when I was I was deprived of it. So uh, you know, absence making the heart grow fonder and all that sort of thing. I, uh, I moved down for work uh, reasons. I moved down to London and I was there for a long time. And uh, part of my job involved getting on a long train ride to and from the office. And uh, and I spent that time reading books. And some of those books happened to be uh, Hoylake related, Hoylake history stuff. And I, I've always had a, a soft spot for, for landscapes and, and, you know, the beauty of landscapes, particularly at sort of start and end of the day when things start to pop. And um, 
And yeah, I, I was reading these great books that people had written and you know, not all of them were uh, crossed over. You know, there's different information in each of them, partly because they've been written in different eras. You know, there might be 20 years between two books and, um, you know, each one was sort of giving me more info. And I, I couldn't believe it. All these years that I've been playing golf at this place, I felt so familiar with the ground, yet I'd never really considered just how it had been used and, and how much it had been pushed and pulled and changed over all these years that it had been functioning. And um, and by virtue of being away from home for such a long time, even though I would dot back and see fams and, uh, family and friends for things like parties and weddings and whatever else, and I would play golf, you know, continue to play golf as a, as a distance member. Um, I, I was getting really into the, the history of the course because of this slight, you know, distance between me and the golf course. So it, I would really look forward to coming home and playing golf and then spotting these things that I'd read about, but I couldn't obviously very easily just go and get it. <laughs> so it was, yeah, lovely to come back and find these things that people have talked about in a book, but seeing them in the flesh and realizing, fabulous. And we're going to talk about some of those things today. But before we get there, I'm going to ask you a really hard question, which is what do you love most about this golf course? Often I hear, especially from Americans who are just watching the Open at Royal Liverpool, that they find this course somewhat dull, you know, that this it's a little bit flat in some places. It doesn't really pop on television, except for obviously a, a few holes, which are a little bit more dramatic. You know, I'm aware that that is a simplistic take on the course, certainly. But what is your argument for the course's greatness? What do you love most about it? Being a naturally a natural contrarian, I would say I, I think I slightly love the 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 fact that the course doesn't instantly get you. I think I'd, I you know I know it's a bit of a hipster answer, but I I kind of like the idea that it takes a few plays before it really lands. Um, I also like the same thing about the old course. I think that's that's the the beauty of those courses. The fact that it does attract some negativity from people who assume that by playing a course once they they sort of are justified in slagging somewhere off. I mean that's it's quite a quite a bold thing to do, isn't it? To go to a, a course that lots and lots of people have loved for 150 plus years and, and decide that you are the uh, the authority. Uh, it's it's quite something. But um, yeah, I, I love it. I just I just love the fact that it doesn't get you straight away. Perhaps you know it does some people. Um, and then it just sort of reveals new secrets over time. And I, I think it rewards those who keep coming back. And uh, there are relatively few people that I know who've played the course a handful of times and don't love it. Um, I think the more you play it, the better you get to, to love the place. All right, let's dig into the real meat of what we're talking about today. Um, so just to give listeners an idea of the course's evolution without getting like too, too deep in the weeds. I asked you to pick a few holes that you wanted to talk about and dig into some history with. And the first one I'd like to touch on with you is what will be for this championship 17. It's the new short par three designed by Martin Ebert that plays out to the coast. We're going to see a lot of this hole. We're going to hear a lot about this hole, but its history actually goes way back to the beginnings of the course, basically. And and I, I find that really interesting because most people just know about its most recent changes and, and, the, and the switch and the routing and, and things like that. So how did this hole begin? Okay, so, so the, the uh, course was first set up as a nine-hole course in 1869. Um, 
at that point, the, the hole that we've just been talking about was not part of the routing. Those nine holes were, were closer uh, to, the, to the old racetrack, which is sort of the, the field inside the, the, the practice ground that sort of ran around that. Um, those original nine holes were closer to today's clubhouse and the old clubhouse, which was the Royal Hotel over on the other side of the property. But um, the, the, the hole that we want to talk about uh, first appeared in the routing in the second iteration of the 18-hole course built in 1871. And that was the same year that it received its royal patronage from the Duke of Connaught, who was Queen Victoria's young son. Um, the, the, so I say the second iteration, what happened was, uh, we can get into the hole in one second, but the, the first nine holes were appended to 12, uh, so a few extra holes were added. And then as far as we can see from the records, there were basically nine holes tacked onto the original nine. And these nine holes went off down south southwards uh, alongside the, the, the coast, and they were sharing a lot of very cramped space. They weren't a great addition, uh, and it took six months, I think, before they realised, okay, let's have a rethink. We can com uh, we can uh, put a name to I think a main name to the changes was um, Jack Morris, who was um, George Morris's son, who came down sort of slightly after his father and Robert Chambers set up the original nine holes. So Jack Morris was son of uh, George and uh, nephew of um, Old Tom. So so he came down and served as the club's uh, long-standing pro for many many years, and also uh, was highly instrumental in the club's initial changes, routings adaptations, everything else. So he, he should be credited with a lot of the good stuff that, that remains. Um, so yeah, he, he was the, the first guy, we think, to, to set up what was known as the, the Rushes Hole. And um, it, it doesn't quite occupy the same space as today's Little Eye Hole does, but it's been through a set of changes that have almost seen it sort of jump and flip flack. And this name Rushes was retained as it moved across these sites to where it is today. Um, should we go right back to the, to the start and carry on that way? Or do you want to talk about what it is today? I think we've seen quite a lot of coverage of what it is today. Yeah. I, you know, it's, 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 it's the whole, that it plays out to the ocean and, and yeah. people will, will, will see it a lot this week. Uh, yeah. Why don't we, why don't we go back to the start? Cool. So right at the start, this this rushes hole, and the, the word rushes was named for that the whole site along the beach uh, was was coated in these coarse sea rushes, a bit like a Westwood Ho for anybody who's played Royal North Devon. That those sorts of sea rush that are really intense, um, an amazing sort of seaside ball grabbing uh, hazard. Um, so those were all over the the, the dune side, and um, and actually made that sort of por portion of land quite hard to use for golf at the time. Um, but there was enough to to form this hole called rushes. And um, and it played. It was a short par three, and it played uh, on on the sort of flattish land. We hadn't got to the dune bit yet by that time. So in 1872, very little of the dunes were used for golf. Um, as I say, they were covered in sort of coarse rushes. The ground was almost unusable for anything kind of golfy without huge amounts of work being done. Um, so anyway, the, the the rushes hole played on a flattish por portion of land, and. My uh, pal Sam Cooper, who you, who you, I think you may have met or spoken to in the past. Um, Sam and I were working on on things with drones at the time, and uh, and Sam had taken this one particular picture that stood out to me straight away. I'd been looking in tandem with this picture at some old history books and showing these sort of rudimentary maps in the books. Some features were just there, and they jumped out at me in this photo he'd taken at very low light in in the evening, and we could see there was the rushes green. It was right where today's black tee for the 13th members hole, 15th uh, championship hole is. Uh, and it's got some really bold features that, that you can still still see in the ground today at certain times of, times of the day. There's a strip bunker 
um, so sort of gouge bunker across the front of the green and then these sort of pock marks these old pot bunkers and then right in the middle it, it's amazing the, the black tea is there and that would have been the green surface so it, it's still there it's quite quite incredible so that when when I discovered that it set me off I was like, how can I put all of these together and take it right from day one 1872 and 71 right through to today and see how the chain connects so that was the start and then uh, the, the T moved um, over to one side to accommodate a slight change in the uh, holes previous. And then again, what happened was in um, 1923, Harry Colt was invited to do a full course master plan, which involved lots more than just this hole. Um, but he suggested in changing the hole that came before the Hilbury hole, um, you just shift the T to the other side of this this rushes green so that instead of playing on a sort of flat uh, at grade tee to green you'd be playing from a raised tee which was closer to his proposed green anyway they went for this they retained the rushes green and had it playing from almost 180 degrees in the opposite direction um, John Ball was was quoted uh, as not liking this at all because he was still of the sort of old mentality in the Victorian days where you should absolutely under no circumstances get away with a bad shot and bad shot to him was uh, some sort of sculled or thinned or, you know, not crisply struck iron, which would, uh, in those days, obviously, just dive headfirst into the into the garbage in front of you. Uh, and he thought by virtue of being on a raised tee, it was like giving a free pass to a bad shot. So he was he was on the record as absolutely hating this idea. <laughs> um, but anyway, they stuck with it and they had this raised tee. And then it was decided about four years later, so late 20s, Colt was invited back again to come and build a new green, an entirely new green, uh, which he did. And we can just about see that green in the bottom of a great old aerial from the late 20s. Uh, it's just at the very bottom of the frame. So if you, don't, if you don't really know what you're looking at, it can be a bit confusing. But when you sit with it for a bit and you kind of draw some lines to give yourself some orientation, 16, 17, 18, this sort of thing, uh, you can see actually he's got both greens in view in this picture. So at the base of the picture, you've got the new green, which he's just built, and then the other one, which is to its side. And that, once again, confirmed my suspicions about where this green was. Um, and it's it's kind of cool because you're looking at this fresh green, which has just come off the block, and uh, and it's, it's wild. I mean, you've got some very kind of scraggy sand around the outside of this putting surface, um, playing from the raised tee that was previously used for the green we were talking about before. He retained the tee position, but shifted the green to where the former Rush's hole was. So the last iteration of the Rush's hole, that was where the green was. Um, but but his his surrounding bunkers were very, very wild. Now, I don't, don't ask me my opinion about it, but I think today's green that we've got, the little eye that Martin Eber has built, um, has got these sorts of sand you know, features and elements around the green. And um, what's amazing is that there is a bit of mirroring of this. Um, so, so actually it's... Uh, <laughs> It's interesting to see because because um, it doesn't look as though it necessarily belongs to the course at that time in the late 20s. And it's funny, we, the criticism has been leveled at the whole for not looking as though it belongs in the course today. So it's, uh, it's an interesting one, history sort of repeating. Um, but the, uh, the funny thing was Harry Colt was invited back a few years later to come, to come and soften the hole. It was considered too difficult by the members. Um, so there we go. I won't go any further. Um, <laughs> is, it, is it a pre preview of the next few years? We'll see. I, I um, don't. I don't ask me. I won't get my crystal ball out. No. I'm not. I'm not. Not gonna. Not gonna force you there. But, uh, no. but that's highly interesting 
history as we know uh you know the past is not the past but um no. that that's that's fascinating so basically the original russia's hole yep. that came about during the time of jack morris who mm-hmm. in addition to being the nephew of old tom morris was i guess the cousin of young tom morris correct and 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 so and george morris was uh in part responsible for the original layout of the course so lots of uh wonderful connections here to the great golfing family of of scotland but in any case that rush's hole didn't play directly out to the ocean as i understand it but was more oriented kind of in that direction you yes. would have been more or less looking at the ocean on kind of a diagonal when you were playing that original Russia's hole. And then Harry Colt was the one who came in because of the rerouting of the Hillbury hole, which we'll talk about soon. Uh, Harry Colt was responsible for reversing the direction of that hole to the same green, but it was determined that that, that hole, when you just reversed it, was sort of unsatisfactory, so a new green was built. And, you know, am I right that that green location that Harry Colt, you know, the, the uh, when he eventually softened to that green, that is ultimately basically what the hole was by the 2006, 2014 open. Pretty much. I think the, the major change in how it appeared and how it looked was that the, the fashion for bunker faces to be raised in order to, to make a suitable test for the top pros, you know, and, and sort of better players. This idea of, of keeping bunker faces low had gone out of fashion. So it's a quite a small green. And the, there were sort of five or six levels of revetment added to the top. And in doing that, it had created much more of a sort of bowl shape from the tops of these bunkers leading straight into the green surface. So actually, the, it had gathered a sort of bowl feel to it, um, particularly from the tee, it felt as though you're playing into more of a channel. Um, but that was never really how it was pre-60s. I think I think 60s was the turning point where where revetting took over across the course and uh, and and across famous links courses. Really, it became the, the fashion. And uh, it's, you know, it's now de rigueur and and more revetted um, revetments being added to make these faces sharper and pop pop bunkers. They've got smaller, and and that's what we were left with. So quite quite mm. severe hazards on the green sides. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Let's go to number 14 for the championship, the Hillbury hole. A lot of people consider this the best hole at Royal Liverpool. I've heard that quite a bit from people who are familiar with the course. So why don't you start with telling me about the hole that we'll see in this championship, what its basic character is, what its strategies are, and then take me back through some of the history that you discovered about it. Uh, so the the tee that the guys will be playing from this time, right at the back, was a um, F, FW Hawtree um, edition in the pre, you know, ahead of the '67 Open that Davis Enzo won. Uh, he added that, which is a great tee. It sits sort of nestled into that back dune there, um, and that was yeah. That that hole has basically been the sort of same shape um, for a long time now. It's uh, you know, it's, it's a long-ish drive. We remember Tiger playing his. Uh, playing his two iron off the tee all around the place in 2006. That was just another example. And he played a great tee shot, but it's uh, for, for our money, if you ask regular members who are playing that hole, he just about found one of the worst places you could find on the fairway if you want to approach the green with any confidence, particularly as he had a tailwind. Um, so if I, if I remember rightly, looking back at it, he had wind, wind slightly behind him. He was playing his four iron and... 
for those who, who've played it, they'll probably see it in their mind's eye. But you, on the short left side of today's bunkers, you're you're then playing over a, a slightly blind shot initially because the first dune cuts into your line of play, and then there's another dune in front of the green which cuts into your line of play. So really, his his flag was kind of double blind. Um, so actually, given the choice, uh, you know, of course he's, he was a genius, but um, you know whether or not he'd actually want to go back and put his ball there is another question entirely I doubt it um, you probably want to be right at that and allow yourself a look at the flag at least because they can really tuck a flag around the back of those dunes and take it out of your sight unless you actually accept because it's a 45 degree dog leg left you know if the further right you go that sort of doubles your distance away from the flag so you know there we go but it's a great hole I mean the the uh, the beauty of the green site is that it has quite a severe runoff on the right side of it uh, and it sits on a, a, a plateau and the right side, uh, up until about 30 years ago, wasn't mown as short as it is today. And I think the the character of the hole has really, it's just taken a massive boost since the decision was taken to, to shave that down and create this variety of shots. So it's become a great hole. I mean, it's always been a good hole, but it's become a really great hole. Um, should we go back a step? Absolutely. In yeah. evolution. Okay. So you, you, you have a video on this that I've watched. I'm not sure if it's for public consumption, but I've got to say it's it's one of the most fascinating golf architecture history videos that that I've ever seen. Um the the way <laughs> that you sort of piece together what is happening at this green site. So yes, please do uh, uh tell that story. Okay. Um we have a selection, like most clubs do, has have a selection of aerials, aerial imagery from over the years, you know, going right through the decades. Um, in UK, we don't tend to have many that go back beyond the First World War, uh, Second World War, apologies. So they tend to be 40s and onwards. If you have something from the 30s or earlier, it's quite... It's quite rare. Uh, I know. I know the US has lots of that sort of thing. You know, thirties, twenties, everything. But um, yeah. definitely. But not but the it's UK. more rare uh, prior to World War Two. I'm sure. just assuming that the technology for creating these kinds of aerials advanced. And and something That's about good. those twenties and thirties aerials, which I believe you discovered as well, is that often they are kind of stitched together yeah. with multiple different photographs, and so sometimes they can be a little bit funky. Precisely. That's exactly it. So, um, you know, we know about distortions of lenses and, and fish eyeing and the sort of weird things that happen when you try to piece piece two things together. Um, but we, we at the club have a, a 1935 aerial. Um, so the uh, in that you can see there's quite a pronounced overlap of, of the photos that have been used for this collage, um, this mosaic. And um, the overlap happens to cross almost through the, the Hillbury Green, uh, the 14th. So um, over the years, when I was trying to merge these these aerial photos together to try to put together the, the sort of evolution of these holes and how they change, because when you flick between them, it really helps you to see these these characteristics that may have been lost or added over the years. And in doing that, I'd assume that the way that the 12th green wasn't really matching up from 1935 to the 1948 aerial that we have. The reason for that was just heavy distortion in, in the lens uh, of the camera that had taken the shot. So so I just sort of put put it to the back of my mind and accepted that that was that. And we had lots and lots of photos of the um, of the green from different eras and decades showing these uh, sort of different looking green. This Harry Colt one, which was surrounded by pot bunkers and, and not just pot bunkers. It had one at the back, a sort of splash bunker. And... Um, 
And it's really interesting because you, you look at those photos and, and the assumption was that's just how the green was. It had bunkers around it. It looks a bit slopier in the old pictures, but, you know, whatever. That's just how it was. These days, there's no bunkers. Um, it, it's got the big runoff and it looks a bit more uh, like a tabletop uh, in terms of plateau-ish than it used to. Um, but but I just put that down again to, to some sort of position that the camera person was taking the shot in uh, and some sort of distortion or like trick of the camera. But actually going back and really studying it hard and messing about, uh, I was able to slice where I thought this, uh, this sort of badly overlapped uh, photograph was. And in doing that, it suddenly dawned on me that actually it looks like the green was about 15 yards further right and away from the water than, than it is today. And also when you look back at those photos, you see, okay, this is what's happened. There's a big sloping front to back um, angle of the green, probably also slightly left to right as well. I suspect with the advent of, I don't know, interest in faster green speeds, um, it might have been too slopey to accept a decent sort of stimp value. I hate that mm. word stimp, but you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, a fast running green, uh, it had become sort of impossible to, to put, pins on it or cut it short I would mm. suspect that that was one of the motivating factors for, for slightly leveling out the green but in whatever the, the whatever happened um, it appears that, that the green has been shifted 15 yards to the left and flattened into a sort of plateau and the land now that we play is this big runoff which we were talking about earlier um, you can see it almost looks like those are borrow pits of earth that have been used to vault up the the land mm. so instead of having this big sloping axis green it's a much more sort of flat tabletopish thing with this severe runoff um, we'd love to credit somebody with this piece of work because it's great i mean it's it's become one of the very best features on the course and as i said it's turned what was already a good hole into perhaps the best hole on the course and a contender for one of the best on the open rotor in, in my opinion in my massively biased opinion <laughs> but the uh I, I just think it's a fantastic hole and and we don't know who to give credit to there's a strong chance it's um it's guy farrar who's the sort of famous secretary of the um of the 50s era at hoylake he was heavily in yeah massively instrumental in it, any of the changes that took place at that time. Um, he is directly credited with several other changes, but nobody, we can't put a name to this one. Um, so that's that. I mean, there's a chance Colt was involved. Um, we, I, I think it's pretty clear. I don't know. Adam Lawrence is releasing his book about Colt soon. I don't know whether he'll, he'll shed any light on this, or at least I can have a read and see if I can pull anything out of it. Um, but the chances are Colt, I don't think was working beyond the Second World War. He was certainly quite old by that stage. I think he died in 51 at the age of whatever he was, 82. Um, yeah. but, but there's a chance he may have consulted and advised from afar. And this change in the green would have been prior to Fred Hawtrey's time at the club, yes, as I much. understand it. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. uh, Fred yeah. Hawtrey made changes. I believe he was maybe asked to do a plan in the late 50s or yeah. 59 even, but made his changes in the run up to the 67 open. Yeah. Apologies if those dates aren't correct. But no, that exactly that's right. around when Fred Hawtrey, Martin Hawtrey's father and and kind of a member of the next generation of British architects after the great generation of Colt and Mackenzie and Simpson, etc. So Fred Hawtrey was there in the post-war era, but it was more post-war than this change uh, seems to have taken place. And, you know, just a, a note for listeners, the reason that Joe and I are so interested in what's happening here is that that original Colt Green that you're talking about, when Colt redesigned the hole 
and built this new green. It was very different from the green we see today and that we associate with one of the best holes in Great Britain. And the fact that it's not an original cult green, it comes as a bit of a shock because I, and I'm sure you, consider Harry Colt to be sort of sacrosanct. One of the best golf architects of all time, maybe the best, certainly one of the most influential. And so whenever we talk about features that Harry Colt built, we do so with a sort of awe. Like this is clearly, there's something that has to be great about this. But what we're confronting here is a green that is no doubt really wonderful and that maybe a lot of people think is a cult green because this is a cult golf hole. But we're finding out that some unnamed person, you know, (laughs) not the greatest architect of all time is responsible for this particular green. So for golf history, golf architecture nerds, this qualifies as a bit of a shock. Absolutely. Um, when I have to give a shout out to a chap who goes by Willie Park Jr. on uh, Twitter. Ooh. I posted uh, his his handle is Willie Park Jr. 1, Willie Park Jr. 1. So um, it's not the actual Willie Park Jr. who uh, designed Sunningdale in 1901. <laughs> we, we assume that this is not uh, this is not the man himself. Yeah, he's, he lives with Elvis. Um, <laughs> we... Yeah, he he um, said something on a post I put on on Twitter about this hole, and I I put a, a photo on there, and he'd said, "Has has the green been changed?" And we'd all everybody I I know had assumed it had not been changed, other than bunkers being removed, you know, in a moderate bit of shaping, whatever else. But the you know realistically, it was it was Harry Colt's green minus bunkers, um, and I went back to it, and that's what really spurred it on. I had to look at it, and I was doing I was working with. Um, the open to do uh, some some uh, historical deep dives on on the holes, you know, showing these pictures. And as I was doing it, it just I couldn't get away from that. I just couldn't get away from it. And it's so so him coming from this angle and doing this other thing in in tandem, the two came together. And I spent several hours trying to get this thing, you know, clear in my head. And the real kicker was that, that you could see across these these sort of photos from the different eras and championships. I think it was an amateur championship in '39. So, so that one just before the outbreak of war had the old Colt green, the old sort of uh, tilted thing going on, and uh, and then post-war in the forty-eight aerial, it's gone. So, whatever happened, it was it certainly wouldn't have been during the war because um, things were put on hold. Basically, um, the course was kind of unusable uh, for for most of those years, and then you know the close of war, it must have been quite soon after in those sort of four years. Uh, for somebody to have come along and uh, or three years I should say um, uh, to have come along and done what they've done so you know that's been there since as far as we can see it some three years after 45 um, it's pretty cool yeah but not very cult. cool there we go we don't very know cool. though we don't know maybe it's Harry Colt from from afar we don't know yeah uh, well we I think the the green today is is terrific and and one thing about what you're saying that's striking to me is that the cult green was well to the right of where today's green is. And one of the things that's really wonderful about that hole, I think, you know, just as just judging from afar, I, I, I haven't been to Royal Liverpool and, and played it myself, but you can confirm whether this is true, that one of the great things about the location of the current green is that, as you were sort of describing earlier, from certain places in the fairway, it's blind. If yeah. you're more aggressive, then you can get a view of the green. 
Now, I would assume that if the grain were more to the right, that it would be more visible from a variety of positions in the fairway. And so what moving the grain to the left has done is it sort of raised the stakes of the drive because it is more blind now. It is more behind kind of those big dunes, that big dune ridge that it sits on. And so the angles are different. The sight lines are different. And I think they they seem to work really well now with this location of the green. There's no doubt it's it's become a real strategic beauty. Um, and, you know, where it fits in the round, you know, it's kind of late central. Um, I, I just think it's a great hole. It's it's a yeah. really fab, fab hole. Um, the, the Colt change came off the bat. Its predecessor played as a straight, more of a straight hole. But the, the drive would have been in front of today's Alps green uh, on those sort of hummocks um, it, at the time when the Alps green obviously wasn't there because Harry Colt at the same time built his Alps hole, which we'll come on to. But the, the drive would have played as a blind one over the shoulder of the dune, which sits next to the Alps green, onto a, a sort of more flat landing zone with bunkers left and right in channels, you know, very sort of throwback Victorian stuff, and um, playing to a green that sat off the, the sort of distant side of today's first leg of fairway on that hole. Uh, it, it was kind of had a pond to one side, uh, which was sort of central to the Rush's hole that played next. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was a straight hole, and Bernard Darwin was famous for saying that he actually lamented the loss of that hole and, uh, and and sort of missed it and thought it was better than its replacement. So there you go, you got John Ball slagging off his tee, and then you got <laughs> you got Bernard Darwin saying that he's made a crap hole, and and yeah, you're getting it from all sides. So um, yeah, so so poor old Colt. He's um, this this is the thing. If somebody said to me like like you mentioned the other day, what you know, if you were to restore the course to a Colt course, you know, if you could, let's just say you could do that. How would you go about doing that? Why, why would you, why would you not go about doing that? Um, my answer would be, I think it takes a brave person to be absolutely sure what's cult, what was cult at Hoylake. That's the, I think that's the problem we have. The, clo- the closest we can do is say, okay, he turned up in 23. We know what his remit was, which was to round off these huge rectangular, well, certain holes were huge rectangular greens 60 yards by 60 yard big croquet lawn things um you know make them more more irregular and interesting to to that sort of age and uh and look at the bunkering because we used to have these strip bunkers everywhere that were Mm -hmm. the the turf walls you know and then these trenches next to them um used as hurdles in lots of cases like a sort of just a a lateral hurdle in front of tees and greens and it was a bit sort of a a steeplechase idea steeplechase stuff yeah Yeah, yeah, his his basic uh you know task was to de-victorianize the course it had it it. had a lot of elements that we would associate with victorian architecture kind of angular geometric um cross bunkers and and squared off greens precisely so yeah that that was uh some of some of the remit the other one was to get rid of blind shots where you where you could um so it's not it's actually not a surprise when i say that back to myself when, when we talk about his hillbury green site and the blindness of the of the drive. Perhaps he was a bit scared of installing a new hole, which would have been pretty radical to the likes of Bernard Darwin. Um, you know, which which contained a blind approach shot. Should you not hit in the right spot? Um, it's an interesting one. Um, that could possibly be a reason for that. But anyway, that's just conjecture. Um, but yeah, the, is, the blind. It's, it's one of it's one of the. Sorry, I, I'll, I'll let you go in a second. But it, what you're saying reminds me of one of the great facts of golf history. And one of the the really interesting things about 
reading what people were writing about golf architecture is that whenever there's a change to a course that we all consider to be a vast improvement, especially when you look at changes to the old course at St. Andrews that happened at a great pace in the late 19th century and early 20th century. When we look at those changes today, we often say those were good changes because by the time we got to the early 1900s, that course was amazing. But when you look at when those changes were made and look at what people were writing about them, very often they are regretting the change and feeling nostalgic for what the course was before. Absolutely. And that's that's just one of the really fascinating things uh, uh, about history is that when you're when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to see whether something is truly an improvement because only time tells. Of course. Was it I think it's Bill Corr who said, you know, time is the architect's greatest tool. <laughs> yeah. Both Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw love to yeah. uh, love to use that line, and it's it's absolutely true. It's spot on, isn't it? I mean, you know, okay, if you give something thirty years, you give it a chance for thirty years, and it's still not working. You think, okay, you know, maybe not. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there we go. Uh, so, uh, you so were about the- <laughs> to say something about blind shots, I believe, when when I interrupted you. Well, we had we had a few blind shots across the course. One of the you know shots being the the twelve, the old Hillbury Drive, um, and part and parcel of of changing those two holes was to uh, I'll get now onto the the Alps hole if that's okay. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're going to go back to kind of twelve and thirteen in, yeah. in tandem, and uh, yeah. So those are obviously the holes right before the Hillbury Hole, which we were just talking about, and also have some some cult lineage to them. Exactly. So. What's what's crazy about these two holes is that the 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 whole of the sort of June ridge, as I said earlier on, was was deemed unusable. Um, their first forays into using those those dunes and more interesting pieces of land were um, using tees, because obviously you can imagine that a sort of tee is very fairly easy to install in comparison with a fairway or green. Um, so the the tees started to make their way into the dunes, playing out of the dunes onto the sort of slightly. Um, less uni land um, but over time it was it was considered we, we can actually do it now you know Colt taking his hole up to the left and onto the the, the dune side and and also Colt's green which um, back in those days in the 20 in the early 20s it would have been a, a beachside green so his his Alps hole that we have today which is now next to the marsh would have been much closer to the water so the water used to come almost right up to the to the um, to the to the side of the green there and, and now just for clarification that's because the geology was different not because the location of the green was different no the geology only yeah Yeah. um so so pre-cult what happened was this was a blind par three um the name alps was actually inherited from a the the previous hole so at one time it was called short alps and there was a alps uh, there was a long Alps, <laughs> and the long Alps involved the two holes merged into one. Um, oh, so they geez. they were quite, yeah. There was quite an experiment going on down this uh, sort of dune land at the time. So they have what is roughly today's D hole, which will play as twelve, and roughly the old um, Alps hole, which will play as thirteen. Those two merged into one. So you played th- two long shots across uh, from from the, the, the 12th tee. And then you played a final shot, which was a blind one straight over the top of this peak. And the peak is where we play the 14th tee shot from. Uh, so, that, so the Hawtree tee. Um, so over the top of that into a sunken, well, not totally sunken, but a sunken uh, sort of square Victorian punch bowl-ish 
style green. And that was your, your sort of three-shotter uh, called the Long Alps. And then they split it into two and they called the first one Alps and the second one the Short Alps. The Short Alps is the one that's been replaced by today's Alps. The other Alps, <laughs> this is getting confusing, isn't it? The other Alps is now called D. <laughs> However, <Okay. laughs> that D played as a straighter hole and it used to play almost directly straight. It was named Alps initially because it's in front of the T. It had three bunkers, uh, Dune Ridge, and th those three bunkers became more formalized and became known as colloquially as the uh, Three Sisters bunkers. They were taken out in the 50s because um, people were picnicking in them. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, a common problem. We have, it at, we have it at every club, yeah. Obviously. Uh, there's, a, there's a footpath that takes you from the Pinfold Road over to the, uh, to the beach, um, and it's one of the paths that goes across the course, and it's just a public right of way. And, uh, yeah, there were three bunkers there, and they were just too appetizing for certain people, so um, they couldn't help themselves. So those got those were got rid of. Um, but, yeah, you used to play this, this blind drive over the top of these bunkers or this ridge into a fairway waiting beyond. Um, and then instead of turning left like we do today, up into sort of um, tabletop green onto, onto a dune, you would have carried on straight with your, your second approach shot into a more sunken green, which was, you know, traditionally uh, Victorians loved a sunken green because it sort of hold water and you didn't have any irrigation in those times. So, so it was seen as a really positive thing to find a site that was good for a sort of bowlish green. Um, and that green would have been in front of today's championship tee for the telegraph hole, which is now a sand scrape. Um, so that, yeah, you can sort of see the, you can see it in your mind's eye. Um, so that, that back tee, when you're watching them play that seventh hole for the championship, just in front of them, there's a big sprawling sort of amoeba sand scrape. And that was the, the old um, uh, D green. The story sort of answers a question that I've had about the name the Alps for today's 13th championship hole. And that is that an Alps hole usually refers to a hole with a blind shot where you're playing over a dune to a green that's hidden on the other side. Mm. And that's not the case with today's Alps hole. It is not a blind shot. It's definitely right. in some large dunes by the standards of Hoylake, but it's not blind, right? You can, you can see the green surface from the tee. True. And it's it's really interesting that the, the sort of naming nomenclature of the of the holes is it's inconsistent because we've like today's little eye um took over from rushes. It was briefly called rushes when it had just been installed in late 2019, early 2020. And uh I think it was called rushes for about a year before the decision was taken to to change the name of it. Um the previous example of this being the um, the Dowie Hole, the famous, infamous Dowie Hole, which was uh, synonymous with internal out of bounds and being brutally um, punishing. But uh, when that was uh, changed and remodeled in the 90s, early 90s, um, there were some members who were very upset that this name Dowie had been retained because it was hearkening to a hole that was in, entirely different in character, even if it was sort of occupying the same space on the course. Um, so anyway, I, I don't, I don't know, don't quote me on this, but I think there were some people who said, well, we've changed the character of this hole so much, we can't possibly call it rushes. So there was a vote taken, I think, and then little I was chosen as the name, but that has, um, precedent because we've across the years, starting right from the very get go, there have always been hole names on the course, um, Punchbowl, incidentally, has been long running and Punchbowl is one of the holes that has been basically in the same space uh, forever since 1871-72 routing. And, that, and uh, that's so, the championship pardon. 11th hole, I believe, right? Uh, yes, correct. Beggy pardon, 1897. So since the first open championship at Hoylake in 1897, the Punchbowl hole has been there and has been called 
punch bowl. We've also had the name punch bowl at the club since the 1870s. And I was trying to find another example of punch bowl used at an older club, uh, but I can't find it. Maybe somebody, maybe somebody knows best than I do, but 1870s, I don't know of a punch bowl older than that. Maybe some, so, so like you're Montrose saying that, uh, that your home club invented the term uh, punch bowl. Is that what I'm hearing? It's a wild claim, isn't it? But, um, <laughs> you know, there you go. If somebody knows of an earlier one than the 1870s, then go yeah, for it. You know, let I, me know, I, I, exactly. Yeah. Uh, open invitation. I think that that's. Yeah, I, I, that's not that's not a bad uh, conjecture, and and certainly the club has been so enormously influential in golf that it would not be surprising if that name, which is basically the name for an entire type of green complex now, indeed, uh, originated at uh, at this club. That I don't think that would be too surprising to me. No, I, you know, it'd be a bit of fun. It's definitely not solid history, <laughs> so I'm not going to go down that road and start sort of, you know, dying on that hill. The um, but but CB McDonald was a member of of Hoylake, um, as yeah. he, as he was member of multiple places. But yeah, he he was definitely a, a member of Hoylake. So who knows? Maybe it seeped into his uh, consciousness, and then when he was writing his his things, he didn't remember to quote Hoylake. Maybe <laughs> there we go. Uh, wouldn't be the first time that CB McDonald yeah. didn't exactly give. Uh, credit to uh, <laughs> something or someone that that maybe deserved it so no indeed um but yeah no it, it's great the the whole names have, have pushed and pulled we've lost so many we've gained many but uh, there are a few sort of long-standing names that have stuck around one of those being alps but as i described before it's chopped and changed all over the show originally called alps for those that june ridge rather than the one that's next to today's alps so actually right. it's inherited the name yet doesn't really have the feature that gave it its name in the whole so there we go. Good stuff. All right. So basically, we've gotten a picture through some of this uh, historical description you've done of the most striking stretch of Royal Liverpool, which is those holes along the Dune Ridge near the estuary. These are holes that I think people are going to focus on during the championship because the visuals are bold and beautiful and involve some fairly large dunes, a lot of the rest of the course is somewhat less dramatic. And some holes, in fact, are on an old race course, which is quite flat. But some of these holes, to me even, looking at their designs, are really interesting. And there's a lot to pay attention to and, and be interested in when players are on these holes. Could you maybe pick out one? that you think people should keep an eye out for on the inland portion of the course, the kind of northern, I don't know if I have my directions right, but the the northern yeah. uh, area of the course, which is a little bit flatter. Is there a hole there that you think is underrated and people should keep an eye out for? Well, I'd, I'd say there's a hole that is among the most divisive, certainly on the course, um, possibly on the rotor. Um obviously playing as the third in the championship, which is a slightly different feeling to how we're used to playing it, which was stepping up sometimes without a practice swing and getting on with it. You know, it's got that out of bounds looming on your right side the whole way down the hole. You've also got the massive clubhouse to your left, probably full of people on the putting green and the terrace outside sort of watching you, you know, waiting for you to smother hook one into the putting green and possibly injure somebody um you know it's just a great hole um 
it's a tricky one because it's not, you know, as we as we say, it's not visually spectacular. It doesn't instantly grab you. It's a weird start. It's a really weird way to start a round of golf. Um, I, I, but I think the beauty of that hole is that it's incredibly difficult and nobody building a, a golf course today would get away with building that uh, either at all, especially not as the first hole in a routing. But I think that's what makes it great. I think it's got so much character that isn't necessarily immediately visual, but the character just, it stays with you. It has an impact, a huge impact. I think it's a terrifying hole. It scores comfortably the most difficult for members on, on the scorecard to par. Um, it, it's fearsome and it's a hell of a start. And if the wind's blowing, you know, in any direction, doesn't matter where it's coming from. If the wind's blowing, you've got to do things to stay in bounds, to make a score. Most people take a bogey and say, that's a good start, you know? And I know we talk about bogeys and pars being ridiculous and vulgar and not meaning anything, but when you're you're mentally trying to set up for a game and you take double on the first hole, it's always a bit depressing, isn't it? You're like, damn, I've been done by it again, not again. Uh, it's just a great hole. And I think what's fun is that I know that the pros hit the ball that much further and it becomes slightly less of a daunting thing when you're playing it as your third hole and you've had time to settle. Um but but still, that out of bounds, the cost is huge to go out of bounds. Um, and I imagine we won't be seeing many go out of bounds because they won't really get TV coverage, you know, unless it happens to one of the top dogs who's who's doing really well and making a charge. If they do something horrendous and go out of bounds, then we'll see it. But I imagine a few will go out of bounds there uh, and they might might not make it on TV. <laughs> so one to watch. That's had a great evolution as well, because that was a true bogey five back in its original day. It used to have some bunkers going down the left side, which you can still see the footprints of, um, you know, very much sort of protecting a second shot. Um, and then they the, used to have a, an insane uh, unbroken strip bunker that went right round the outside of today's practice ground cop wall. So huh. you, you had bunkers on one side, you know, this, this horrendous strip of bunker. And then you had uh, three bunkers protecting the left side of the approach. You've got your clubhouse, you've got out of bounds. It was just set up to slap you in the face. I mean, it's like it's the absolute opposite of your gentle handshake and i love that <laughs> yeah that's that's great and it is the third hole in the championship routing yeah. which i always regret a little bit because as as a starting hole i find it almost somewhat hilarious yeah how it's hard ludicrous it is. yeah yeah it's absurd <laughs> i mean it's i just love it for that i love that you know if you allowed the sort of uh, the general consensus to have a say in your architecture i think you're doing something massively wrong that's what i would say general consensus of wisdom of crowds almost the opposite of what it should yeah. be <laughs> but there we go if you're yeah. going to commit to not doing a gentle handshake opener you might as well go all the way in the other direction whole and that's hole. what you that's what you just have to respect yeah. about that hole do you think before we finish on that hole because i think it's interesting do you think we're going to get anybody who takes it over the corner on the drive Oh man, I, it, I've thought about that. It's such a risk and players, especially today, are so averse to mm. playing near out of bounds, right? That's poison. They'll do yeah. anything but yeah. be out of bounds. But what do you do on that hole? Like, because left isn't very good either. <laughs> you no, know, if you're, really. if you're blowing it into the rough on the left, I mean, maybe they'll be looking for kind of trampled down lies from the galleries stuff like yeah. that 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 could be the play ultimately but if the rough is sort of proper over there on mm. the left then that's a terrible approach shot to be hitting into that green and yeah. and dangerous in its own right because the out of bounds is still kind of there up by the green 
So I don't know. What, what do you think? Do you think players are going to be uh, uh, taking that line over the wall? I imagine it goes for most holes, but I think you know, the wind, if there is wind, which is I think is forecast, we're you know if we get some wind, then that will play a huge part in decision making, um, particularly on that hole. If it's helping left to right, which would actually be not the prevailing. Uh, if we do get an unusual left to righter, um, maybe they'll send up a nice controlled high fade, land it as soft as they can, and, and feed one up there to about fifty yards, maybe. I don't yeah. know. It'll be a rare, rare thing, won't it? Because the risk is so high. Um, yeah. Just leave you with this one. I know we were going to go then. Sorry, I can't, can't help but say this one. You know where, where people have a bit of a moan about in, internal out of bounds? I mean, let's ne- not get on to why it's there. You know, it, it, the club didn't own it in the initial days of you know the setup of the club and such. But imagine that were just a huge bank of gorse. Not, a, not out of bounds, just gorse. You know, imagine at Dornock. You know, you're playing right. brilliant holes like the sixth. You know, the gorse is just the gorse. It's there, you know. And and if there were gorse at Hoylake instead of out of bounds, you know, would you say that the strategy or the, the shape of the hole is somehow at fault? It's mm. not. It, it's just brilliant. The punishment is the same. You're not going to find your ball, are you? You know, so I mean, you know, if it were a bank of gorse rather than out of bounds, would that somehow make it a better hole, even though the punishment is the same and the strategy is the same? I, you know, I just think it's uh, when you moan about internal out of bounds, I just think you're onto a wrong one. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's there. It's the course as it's uh, presenting yeah. itself to you. The thing about that area that cuts into the members' first hole championship third hole at Hoylake is that it has a historical basis. Yeah. That wasn't just built there to mess with people. It was part of the history of the property, and so to me, completely fair game to deem that out of bounds and to make it a hazard on the golf hole. Um, now I am curious to know how the dynamics of the hole would change if it were a hazard penalty as Mm. opposed to an out of bounds penalty, Mm. just a curiosity. I don't think the hole would necessarily be better, but I think it might change the calculus a little bit when it comes to aggression from really top level players. Well, you say that, I mean, it's funny that in the fifties it would have been a one shot penalty until the rule change. Um, yep. So actually, in the, in the early days of the hole, there's some, there's some debate, and not, not fierce debate, there's a lot of shoulder shrugging, saying, I honestly don't know, is that in, in an old picture, uh, hand, hand-drawn sketch, or at least a couple of them that I've seen, it's marked as field, and then very clearly in other places, it's defined as unplayable field. And, you know, putting sort of two and two together, hoping to get four rather than five, you know, you, you say, okay, does that mean that actually you could play from that field or not? I mean, unplayable obviously is self-explanatory, but it did, it's very clearly not marked as unplayable field. And there are other areas that are marked as field rather than unplayable field. Now, I don't know whether that means that the club owned the land or whether it was in play. There was certainly no practice going on at that time. And this, this map is from the 1870s. So, you know, this idea that it may have been playable if you wanted to is a really interesting one. So if you wanted to take it as the crow flies line and accept that this field, which was probably occupied by sheep or something, you know, maybe a load of hoof prints and, and whatever else in there that you don't want to play your ball from, if that was a deterrent enough. And if it was coming with a one-shot penalty of just the stroke penalty rather than stroke and distance, which was came many years later, maybe it was on the cards if you wanted to take on that risk. Who knows? Joe, the answer is always bring back the sheep. Bring back the sheep. That's, the that's always the answer. When it, when it comes to sheep, just bring them back. 
Um, so that's 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 my humble suggestion to, uh, <laughs> to to the great club. All right. So people can find your Twitter account at Joe MCD underscore golf. I would not say it's the most effective username that I've seen in the history of Twitter, but that is indeed <laughs> where you can be found. And uh, you post all sorts of wonderful stuff there. So I would highly encourage people to dig into some of the work that Joe does. We haven't even talked about the visuals that you do and how you create those, but they're really wonderful looking. Um, and so keep up the great work, Joe. Thank you for coming on the podcast and I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks Garrett. That was great. This episode of the fried egg podcast was edited by Matt Rusius. Thank you, Matt. One thing to keep an eye on tonight or tomorrow, depending on where you are in the world, is that for the very first tee times at the Open Championship, I'm going to be manning the Fried Egg Twitter account. That's the underscore fried underscore egg on Twitter. I'm going to stay up late on the West Coast and kind of be reacting to things as they happen during the very first phases of the Open. It's one of my favorite parts of the golf year is just that little vibe that gets going at the very beginning of an open championship in America. A lot of us are either up extremely early or up late to watch that stuff. And it's a true kind of golf sicko moment. So for the first round of the open, basically we're going to have a fried egg up all night kind of deal. I'm going to pass the keys to the Twitter account to Brendan Porath after a couple of hours. He's going to get up early on the East Coast to start tweeting from the fried egg. And we're just going to have a little bit of fun during that first round of the Open Championship. It should be really great. Uh, it's one of my you know favorite, favorite days of the year, really. It's kind of like a holiday. And since I'm staying up late, I'm probably going to be drinking a little bit of wine. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. All right. Thank you for listening. And we will be back again early next week with a recap of this Open. Thank you.